Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 8. We're going to be reading from Psalm 8 in addition to the other references to Scripture that Isaac mentioned. Good morning and welcome. It's good to be here together with you. Uh, my name is Michael, and I am a part of Christ Church of Ornogo. Normally, I sit where you sit, and so I uh, take as an opportunity uh, the chance I have today to share some thoughts with you, and I look forward to doing so, beginning with Psalm 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along up on the screens, and if you need a Bible, let us know because we will put one in your hands. We're passionate about people having the Word of God, and so we want to make that available to you, certainly. Psalm chapter 8, here's what David wrote. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The picture that you'll be looking at here in just a few seconds is something that we call, as you know, a fetus. Now, I, I promise you I'm not trying to be provocative, but I want to point out that whatever you think this is, uh, we put to death over one million of them every year. And that's even uh, after the steady decrease we've seen of late, which is a good thing. According to the Guttmacher Institute, between the years of 1973 and 2011, in the United States of America, we saw 53 million legal abortions take place. Some of these pregnancies resulted from uh, accidents, others from crime. Some of these children weren't the preferred gender, others had Down syndrome, still others were fine. None of them saw the light of day. Or to be accurate, some of them did, but not for very long. I assure you, I'm not trying to talk about politics. I'm not raising a political issue. I'm asking a worldview question. Are they valuable? Do they matter? Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. These people that you're looking at are slaves panning for gold in Ghana, a country in Africa. As you can see, some of them even carry children as they wade into the waters that have been poisoned by the mercury they use in the gold extraction process. This picture was taken by a photographer named Lisa Christine sometime in the last five years. It's been two centuries since the Atlantic slave trade was abolished by the British Parliament, and it's been over 150 years since the Union's victory in America's Civil War and the official end of slavery within our borders. And yet more human beings are enslaved today than were trafficked across the Atlantic in 350 years of shadow slavery. 
People held against their will, forced to work, and paid nothing. The numbers eclipse 20 million, 27 million if you add bonded labor. And if you ask the people in Harvard, they say the number is something more like 29 million. That is over twice as many as were shipped out of Africa in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. I am not belittling the history at all. But perhaps we shouldn't act as if we've progressed quite as much as we think. Debt bondage, child labor, human trafficking forced marriage. Then, as now, we're talking about real people, real elementary-aged children in India like Prabhu, Bubalan, and Ganti, real girls named Erica or Destiny or Claire. Here's our question. Are they valuable? Do they matter? When I consider the work of your, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. All I know about this man is what can be known from the picture. His name is Clayton and he works at Walmart. I don't know how old he is, though from the picture I can tell he's older than me. I don't know if he works at Walmart because he likes being around people or because he needs the money or both. Maybe he expected to get more from Social Security than he is, and so he has to work there. Maybe he worked for the same company for 40 years, only to see his retirement evaporate in the fiscal crisis of the last decade. I'm not sure. I'm also not sure if he's married. Maybe his wife is alive and happy at home, or maybe she's at someone else's home, or maybe she's at another register. Maybe his wife is no longer alive. Maybe he's divorced. Maybe he never got married. He is smiling, though we can never be sure if a person is smiling because they're happy or to try to hide the fact that they're not. All I know is that his name is Clayton, he works at Walmart, and if I were to go through his lane, depending on what, going on, what was going on in, in my day, I probably would hardly notice him. Is he valuable? Does he matter? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. None of these numbers or pictures or faces or histories force us to think anything, but they do invite us to ask, do they have value? Are we looking at and talking about people who matter? And if we think so, why? How do we know? And raising the question about them, of course, also raised the question about you and about me. Are you valuable? Do I matter? We certainly can't say everything we would need to say about being human today, and we're not going to try. We're not going to talk much about sin, for instance. That's kind of important. It's a crucial topic for understanding yourselves, but it's one we'll talk about another day. We're asking today a different question, a fundamental question. Not so much are you bad or good, but are you valuable? We are in a series called Corrective Lenses, and our goal in this series is to uh, break open the concept of worldview, that we all look at our entire world, ourselves included, through a certain set of lenses. Uh, we all live a certain story that we're not always aware of, and so we're trying to ask ourselves, how can we come back to a Christian, a biblical worldview? And what you need to know about every worldview, biblical or otherwise, is that every worldview includes a self-view an assessment, an evaluation, a judgment about you and about me. And no matter your worldview, even if you don't think you have one, you do, and it teaches you about your value. Are we valuable? And even if we are valuable, are you and I as individuals valuable? And if so, on what basis? And is our value inherent, something that's just there, or is it potential, something that we have to achieve? Can we waste our value? Can we lose it? And my goal today is pretty simple. I just want to remove all doubt in your mind regarding this question of whether or not you matter. 
Let's start with what we know is true. All of us want to matter. Each one of us wants to know that our lives are valuable. Everyone wants to feel like they're worth something, worth more than their weight in in blood and bones and skin. We want to know that our lives count. We want to matter. And on the one hand, our value seems obvious. I mean, if we human beings weren't valuable, then why would we think so highly of at least some of the people around us? I mean, of course we're valuable. Of course we have worth. Worthless people don't raise happy families and build successful companies. I mean, the species that brought us Mount Rushmore or the Mona Lisa or smartphones. I mean, certainly these people must matter. But but on the other hand, we doubt. We doubt because we've all done dumb things, we've all done dark things, we've all done evil things, whether on purpose or by accident, whether a long time ago or just recently, we have participated in the dark side and we know it's true. And what's more, in addition to the things that we've done, we've been told otherwise. From the moment we enter into this world, we've been receiving messages about, among other things, our value as individual persons. Use your head for more than a hat rack. Am I dumb? And if so, should I say anything at all? I mean, that verse, that, that dress really looks, just, just looks bad on you. Well, am I pretty? And if I'm not, then do I have anything to offer anyone around me? Your mistake, your burden, you're worthless, you're stupid. You're not allowed to make mistakes. You must be approved by certain people in order to feel okay, starting with me. You don't have the right to experience joy or pleasure. You don't have the right to assert yourself or say what you think. You don't have the right to feel. And if you do feel, who cares? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. The truth is, many of us walk into a room like this with deep shame issues. I hesitate to say it that way because it sounds so psychological. But, but I think it's true. I think we walk into a place like this, in a room like this, and wonder if we belong. Wonder if everybody else, I doubt that anybody else is like us. It's not just that we know we're guilty, that we know we've done things that have put us in the direction of God's wrath apart from Jesus. It's not just that. It's that we, are, we, we feel that like deep within us, the core part of us is completely black, totally broken, unredeemable, unfixable, dirty. We're ashamed. Something is so wrong with us that we're not sure if anything can do anything about it. And you know, I wondered at first if it was wise to walk into a room like this and reassure a bunch of recovering narcissists that we're valuable. We do live in an age of narcissism, you know, where we're trained to think of ourselves first and and often only. And in this sense, you need to, if you haven't, you heard it, you need to listen to Mark's message from last week because they go hand in hand that week in this one. They are really two sides of of the same coin. Remember when he said, if you had nothing to do with you getting here, then this place probably isn't all about you. And that is important for us to remember. And it is also important for us to remember that our self-congratulation and our self-obsession is often rooted in the very same thing as our self-hatred. The nagging suspicion that in the final analysis, we are worthless. That we don't, or at least might not, matter. Does everyone matter? Do I? Do you? 
And what we're going to discover today is that the Word of God has a more than sufficient answer to this question. Corrective lenses, A or B, should we look at things the way the world tells us to look at things, or should we look at things the way that God's Word tells us to look at things? You've all been in one of those chairs in an optometrist's office, and you've seen the click, and it's actually a pretty cool machine. One of my favorite doctors to go and visit is an optometrist because I like the A or B machine. Is it clearer this way, or is it clearer this way? And what we're asking is, what is the lens that we should look through? in order to see the truth about our world and about ourselves. And you need to know that the world will give you a lens. And that in this case, the world's lens is pretty consistent. You are valuable if. That is what the world will tell you. You are valuable if certain things are are true about you. We're going to talk about three of them. I didn't make these up, though I think they do pretty well span the spectrum. And the first thing that the world will tell us is you are valuable if you do. If you do. If you produce, if you accomplish, if you're productive, if you generate results. And for each of these items, or each of these points, we're going to have an item, an object from our culture that really kind of symbolizes the point. And when it comes to the issue of being valuable if you do, I don't know something more fitting than a to-do list. Can I get an amen from somebody in the room? Yes? I love these things. Some of you love these things. You have a to-do list, right? We, we love these, and we like to put on here the different things that we have to do and scratch off the list. And I actually decided I would be vulnerable and show you a picture of my to-do list. Take a look at this. I don't do it on one of these. Here's a picture of my to-do list. This isn't a daily thing. This is like, you know, I do a global to-do list. And when I get to the end and there's just a bunch of black marks, I am a happy man. I throw a party pretty much every time. So what, what you wouldn't know from looking at this, and maybe some of you are like me, is I'm that one who, if I accomplish something and, and I didn't have it on my list, I'm going to write it in and then I'm going to cross it off. How many of you do that? You're, I'll see you in therapy. We are sick. I don't know if you realize that. We have a problem, right? But the other thing that you could notice about my to-do list, if you look closely at it, is notice that when I have to write something in, I use just an everyday pen, you know, no big deal like anybody else would. But when I am ready to cross something off, I use a Sharpie. (laughs) It's not enough for me just to put a line to the thing. I don't want to see it anymore. I just want to see a bunch of big, black, thick marks that indicate that I have accomplished all that I set out to accomplish. Somebody once said, I'll slow down when my to-do list is, is smaller than my been there, done that list. And I think many of us live like that. We find ourselves saying, I'm so busy all the time. We find ourselves saying, yeah, I tend to overwork at work, or maybe I overwork at home or in the gym or at church. Why do we do this? Well, because we want to produce. We want a sense of accomplishment. We want results. And in its proper place, this is fine and good. We were made to work. We were made to produce. We were made to do things. But keeping this in its proper place is harder than it seems And whether for you it's completing your to-do list, or maybe for others it's accomplishing your career goals in time, or maybe still for others it's about the attaboy or the attagirl that you get when you do a good job. Uh, Whatever it is for you, we feel valuable if we're doing enough, if we're being recognized for doing enough. And when this doesn't happen, when we lose this, we feel like a general failure. We feel like less of a person. You are valuable if, that's what the world says, world also will tell you that you're valuable if you have, not just if you do, but if you have, if you have stuff, if you get stuff, if you, uh, you know, acquire or possess or accumulate. And the symbol for this one was kind of obvious, and it's a small symbol, which generally is not a good idea, but that's okay because you all know what it is. It's a credit card, these fancy, shiny little things. I thought about doing some research on statistics regarding credit card debt, but I figured we'd take the easy route. Quick show of hands. How many of you have credit card debt? I'm totally kidding. Don't raise your hand in answer to that question. 
Although when I started to say that, some of your hands started sweating a little bit and you thought about walking out of the room. All of a sudden, I need some coffee. I don't know what happened to me. Credit cards are part of our world. Have you heard this phrase, retail therapy, before? Okay, so I'm a little slow. I've not heard this till recently, and I'm leaving the house the other day, and Beth, my wife, says to me, if you need a little retail therapy, we need a Keurig order. And I said, what is this phrase you speak of that so accurately describes us? The feeling we get when we purchase something, and I'm thinking about the fact that this fits, and it's just a brilliant little phrase and a frightening one. I mean, the fact that this is a thing. The fact that we have named our pathological need to purchase or the satisfaction that we feel when we swipe a card or hit place this order or take the proper amount of cash out of our wallet and hand it over to the person, that's kind of scary. And I don't think it takes a psychologist to see that we acquire and we gather and we possess to convince ourselves that we matter, that we surround ourselves with things that are worth something so that we subtly hope that by doing this, we might come to feel that we are worth something. You are valuable if you have, says the world. And the third thing the world says to you is you are valuable if they say so. If they say so. We all have these little things right here. Often they're bigger than this, but we have a mirror. I'll try not to shine it at you too much because I don't want to blind your faces, but we all, you know what this is. You recognize this object. We look at these things to look at ourselves, but the truth is for most of us, it's not just what we see when we look in the mirror. It's what we imagine. Because for many of us, when we're looking in the mirror, we're not actually just looking at ourselves. We're looking at this imaginary group of people behind us, wondering what will they say? What will they think? And it's often not just about how we look. Many of us gave up that battle a long time ago. But we ask questions about what they might say if they saw what we see. If they know what we know, will they still approve of us? And if they won't, then why don't we just get back into bed? If they won't say anything nice about us, then why not just head back to the fridge or go out to a bar or head to my desk and browse Facebook all day long doing nothing? And as long as other people, if the right people are saying nice things about me, I'm good. And as long as other people want you, want to date you or marry you or stay married to you, want to hang out with you, want to hire you, then you have value. As long as the right people want to bring you into the right meetings and they ask your opinion and they want your thoughts or they want your, your presence, then you're relevant. Or, or for some of you, as long as other people need you, as long as they need you to be stable or they need you to fix them, whether it's the husband who abuses or the child who refuses to grow up, whoever, as long as they need you, you matter and you know it. I'm not trying to be trite, and I certainly don't want to just pour salt in your wounds, but you were not created, you were not created to live a lie. And you were not created to derive your value from slippery foundations like what some people, perhaps the right people, happen to say about you. Nor should you define your value by what you have, nor should you define your value by what you do. If you do that, If you choose to live by the world's view of you, if you give in and define your value on the basis of these things, two things will eventually happen. One, your life will fall apart. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but you'll hit a dry patch and the results will no longer be apparent and the possessions will no longer be growing, at least in comparison to somebody else, and the people will no longer be saying the right things and you'll find that you don't know who you are. You'll ruin your own life. And what's more, it's not just that you'll ruin your own life. You'll secondly ruin the lives of the people around you, often those who love you most. Now, I don't know which is going to happen first 
just depends on your story. But what will happen eventually is what's most likely taking place is that the people who, who are close to you, they're trying to play your game as, as, hard, as much as they can. They're trying to go along with you in your pursuit of, of production or your pursuit of possessions or in your pursuit of popularity because they want to be close to you, because they want you to notice them. But eventually they realize they don't have the stamina, they don't have the speed that you have, so they just kind of let you do your thing, waiting quietly on the sideline for you to stop and look. At first feeling neglected, then angry, then indifferent. Do not ruin their lives in these ways or yours. But thankfully, we do have another option. See, whereas the world says to us, you are valuable if, God's word says you are valuable because. I need you to catch that. The world says you are valuable if, but God's word says you are valuable because. The truth is we are all, to a man, woman, child, at whatever stage of development or lack thereof, valuable. And, and to see this, all we got to do is open up the Bible and read it. To see this, all we got to do is pay attention to what Scripture says. Like Mark said last week, this isn't just one man's thoughts. I'm not just here to give you my opinion. I'm just going to try to show you what the Scripture says and draw simple conclusions from that. Let the text tell us what they say because they're fairly clear. One of the things that the Bible tells us is that you're valuable because of how God made you. How he made you. Not just that he made you, but, but how he made you. Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the Bible. Verses 26 through 28 speak of the creation of humanity. Here's what we read. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Notice that it says we're made male and female, and this is the way in which we do this together. And the next chapter actually tells us how that goes down. But there are some other traditions that aren't in Scripture, so we can't be 100% sure. But, hey, you know, maybe you've heard the stories. Maybe you heard the story about the time when Adam was kind of moping along in the garden, and God looks down and says, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, I don't have anybody to talk to. And God says, well, how about I make you a woman? She'll be perfect for you. She'll be beautiful, and she'll, she'll, she'll cook for you, and she'll clean for you, and she'll rub your back at night and your feet in the morning, and she'll uh, bear your children, and she'll never ask you to get up in the middle of the night to take care of them, and she'll just be this, this wonderful gift from me. She'll never nag. She'll basically agree with almost everything that comes out of your mouth, and Always be the first to admit when she's wrong. And when you do make up from a fight, she'll never have a headache, if you know what I mean. And Adam says, God, that sounds awesome, but it sounds expensive. What will a woman like this cost me? And God says, well, it's going to cost you one arm and one leg. And after thinking about this for a moment, Adam says, well, what can I get for a rib? Have no fear, ladies. There is another version. And in this version of the story, the Eve is cre actually, actually created first. The woman comes first in this. Uh, well, and again, not in Scripture, so we can't be 100% sure. But according to this tradition, Eve is created first. And Eve is, Lord, I have a problem, she says one day. And, and the Lord says, what's the problem? And she says, well, I love it here. Thank you for creating me. I'm grateful for that. And thank you for the wonderful garden. It's beautiful. I love looking at the flowers and smelling them. And the animals are great. The serpent's a little creepy. But other than that, they're wonderful to be around. Around, but I, I'm not happy. And God says, why aren't you happy? And he says, because I'm lonely. And God says, how about I make you a man? 
And Eve says, what is a man? And God says, well, man is a, well, a flawed creature (laughs) with aggressive tendencies, an enormous ego, and generally speaking, an inability to empathize. (laughs) Mostly he'll give you a hard time, but he'll be bigger and faster and stronger. And although you will, he'll probably need your advice in order to think properly much of the time. He'll be good at things like, you know, fighting and kicking a ball around and hunting fleet-footed ruminants, and there'll be other fringe benefits as well. It'll be nice. And Eve processes this for a while, and she says, that sounds like a great deal, Lord, but there's got to be a catch. And, oh, there is indeed a catch, says the Lord. And Eve says, what is the catch? And the Lord answers, well, you're going to have to let him believe I made him first. (laughs) So I'm not quite so sure that's how it went down, but let's look at how it did. I need you to notice the details of the text. I need you to really see what is said here. And if you have a pen or pencil, circle in your Bible the words, let us make. Because we've not seen that phrase before now. Up to this point, it's been let there be. Let there be light. Let there be sun, moon, and stars. Let there be an expanse that separates the waters above from the waters below. Let there be dry ground. And let there be animals to populate the various parts of this. And now it's let us make. Why? What is this? It almost looks like a planning meeting of sorts. There's dialogue, there's deliberation, there's intentionality. Why? Well, it's one of two things. Either God was stumped or you truly are special. Either God hit a wall or there's something about being human that is unique in a good way. And we know that God does not get stumped and we know that God does not hit walls. Therefore, scripture confirms what one good look around the world will always reveal to us. You are unlike anything else God has ever made. I think about my favorite worship song, How Great Thou Art. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the universe displayed. I look around at creation and I stand in awe. And then I look at Genesis 1 and I notice God's to-do list doesn't quite look like I expect. Because on his to-do list you have, you know, the mountains and you have the ocean, and you have, you know, like cool stuff like the giraffe, and the Milky Way, like the galaxy, and the candy bar, both are great. And then, and then there's you, and you have a star beside you, and you are circled because you are the most important item on his to-do list. Look at what it says. You're made in his image, and this is only true of us. It's not true of the spiders. It's not true of the lions. It's not true of the flowers. It's not true of the sun. We were made in his image. We alone stand as visual representations to all creation that God is in charge, and our charge is to extend his rule on his behalf. Right there on the first page of the Bible, we see the truth. You matter because of how God made you, and this is literally just the beginning. The second thing we see, and we know the story goes from there, and we kind of make a mess of this good world he gave us. We break it, and we're still experiencing the results of brokenness, so we need saved. Second point, you are valuable because of how God saved you. Because of how God saved you. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Here's what he says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let me put this, if I could, in uh, credit card language. Here's how we might paraphrase what Paul's saying. While no one would go into debt for a 15-year-old Pontiac with no air conditioning, though for a decent running Kia, some might be prepared to do so. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this. He paid what he had, though we were a bunch of Yugos and Pintos broken down in a car lot somewhere. He gave all he had on our behalf. Or if you prefer, very rarely will anyone max out their plastic for a Minnie Mouse backpack, though for a 31 bag, some may be tempted to do so. <laughs> but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still a bunch of Walmart sacks with holes all along the bottom, he spent all he had on our behalf. See, it's not just that he saved you, it's how he saved you. It's how he saved you when you were at your worst and did so by giving his best. God didn't just swipe a card or push a button that placed this order. He sent his son to die so that you might live. Jesus paid it all. And if you don't think this means you're valuable, I'm not sure anything else I say can convince you, but I'm gonna try one more time because I think the third thing we see in scripture is that you are valuable because of how God will judge you. I'll, honest, I'll be honest and confess, I was surprised by this. I didn't expect to find this one. You're valuable because of how God will judge you, and yet it jumped right off the page when I read 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You see, there will come a time when Jesus will be the only one standing behind us when we look into the mirror. And the mirror won't show us ourselves in that particular moment, but it will replay for us every moment of our lives, the things we've done and not done, the things we've said and not said, the things we have thought and continued to think, the good, the bad, and the parts we don't speak of. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. I don't know that there will be a literal mirror there, and I don't know that Jesus will need an actual film session, but the underlying point is solid as steel. You and I will be judged. And the world looks at this and says, judgment clearly means that God does not care about us. And I want to tell you, stop, look, stop thinking like the world. Because I think the opposite is actually true if you begin to think about it. We only judge what matters to us. Judgment makes, makes sense only if God like, cares about you and if you matter to him. Because we don't evaluate what we regard to be worthless. We don't judge what we, what we don't expect anything from. We judge what we do expect something from because we judge what is valuable. It's no surprise or secret uh, that, that the word value is right there in the middle of the word evaluate. We evaluate what we know has something to offer. And we judge in more detail what we know is more valuable. I'm going to pay closer attention to my children's report cards than to the report cards of my children's friends because they're more important to me. So here's the logic. We evaluate what we value. You will be evaluated by God. Therefore, you have value. You matter. From beginning to end, the story of your life, according to a biblical worldview, indicates at every turn that you are valuable. And regardless of how much or how little you produce, independent of what you do or do not have, and irrespective of what others say about you, whether positive or negative, you matter. I think life sometimes tempts us to think otherwise, and what I'm saying is this is a sinful temptation that we must resist along with all the others. So what if right now you're not contributing or, or collecting or connecting? Maybe you're getting lost in the mix in this season of your life. Maybe no one is noticing you. These experiences are unfortunate, but these unfortunate experiences don't matter for this question because they have nothing to do with the fact that you matter. We need to think about our, our verse that stands as a heading for this entire series. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That is a strong verse. Why does Paul use such strong language about ideas? Well, because as one person said, the longest distance in the world is 18 inches from here 
to hear. So how do we take this to heart? How do we take our thoughts captive? Well, for starters, we start living as if the truth is true. So for you, this means stop undervaluing other people. You know, the people that you yell at or swear about under your breath, the people that you gossip about or write off or ignore or snub, the people that you step over as you make your way to the top, or the people that you think it's okay to kill. Stop treating or regarding them as if they don't matter. They do. Be compassionate towards the people that you see in your life every day. Notice them, their pain, their joy, their perspective. And actually, here in a couple of moments, while we play, we're going to give you a chance to reflect. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to think through your life and to come up with maybe one or two names. No more. One or two. Start here. People in your day that you treat as if they don't matter. Stop undervaluing them. And I would be remiss if I didn't say one more thing. Stop undervaluing yourself. Stop measuring your value by your production or by your performance or by your possessions or by your popularity. Stop worrying worrying about whether you're a have or a have not. Stop seeing yourself as worthless or barely above worthless. Be passionate about your life, not somebody else's and not what you wish your life was like if your situation was different. Your life as it is, is valuable because you are valuable. You only get one of them. Don't waste it. One more story and we'll be done. There's this painter in Italy in the 1800s named Rossetti, and he was well-respected, and one day he's walking along the street, and this older man asks him if he would come and take a look at some of his work. He had taken up painting again recently and wanted to know if he had uh, any sort of anything to offer the artistic community, and so Rossetti goes to this house, and he takes a look, and he um, has to be honest with the man. They're not good. And so he tells him, I'm sorry, uh, Kim, you're doing this as a hobby, but there's, there's not a whole lot here. The old man was sad, but not surprised. And he asked Rossetti for one more favor. He said, would you mind taking a look at a couple other paintings by a much younger artist? And Rossetti says, fine, that's, that's, I will. And so he goes to a closet and he takes out some paintings and he brings them in and he sets them up. And Rossetti is astounded because they're beautiful. He says, these are gold. I don't know who this young person is, but they have potential. You need to tell them, never stop painting. Who is this? Is this your son? Is this your grandson? And the old man, again unsurprised, but this time more sad, admits that they are his from when he was a boy. But he didn't think they were worth anything, so he quit. Imagine what God might do if instead of wasting our lives trying to establish our value, we acknowledged the truth that we are valuable and we lived from that. Imagine what God might do in the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years if you take him at his word and believe, really believe, that because of what God has done, you matter. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.